Welcome to Episode 7 of the Mental Health Commute with Dr. Walt Duffy and Matt Duffy. Today, we thought we would delve into research, clinical research, a little bit. So, Matt, can you start us off there? We're looking this week at another question, which is, at what point in someone's treatment should they consider research as an option that they should look at? Well, should or could they or why is research even done? Why do some places do research and some places don't? This podcast has been sponsored by Elevation, and we do have Elevation Research. I've been involved with research for almost 20 years now. To me, it brings another possibility and opportunity to a patient in the clinical continuum. You know, when I talk about potential treatment options, it's one of the options we can discuss. What we see and what we've talked about a lot so far is that, one, when do people come to get help for things like depression and anxiety? What type of treatments are available? And what I see in my specific practice are a lot of people who have treatment resistance. So what is treatment resistance? So treatment resistance might be that you've come in and tried a couple medications, been in therapy, tried some different things, and for you, they're just not working out. We know with any given diagnosis, over 30% of the people who have entered treatment that have some type of treatment resistance along the way. And we might have tried different medications from different categories for them. They've been in therapy, and they're still not feeling well. And there are other people who really would not sure what they want to start on. We sort of talk through some options. And there's some people who are like, I get to find out new things. I'm giving back to society. Usually with medications or devices that have been looked at to some stage, their adverse effects, might they have some clinical utility in a certain condition such as depression, anxiety, ADHD, Tourette's, dementia, schizophrenia, things like that. And now they're wanting to find out, okay, if we take a group of people who have this specific diagnosis and they need to be pretty clean, what do I mean by clean? They might not have a lot of other diagnoses, not have a lot of other comorbid issues going on. We put them into controlled trial of eight or more weeks, and it might be double-blind, placebo-controlled, where part of the group gets the medicine or device and part of the group doesn't get the medicine or device. Then we look at those results. Does it have a positive result where it has shown efficacy versus quote-unquote placebo and with not having a lot of side effects? And that's what you have to be able to prove to get the FDA approval so the medication or device can get approved for a specific condition, and that's what leads then to insurance coverage down the road. If you don't get insurance coverage, then a lot of people do not have um, access to the treatment. The nice thing about research is some people do not have insurance. Treatment can be costly. Research takes care of all that. You get the treatments free, and there's often a small stipend to compensate you for your time that you are spending in research then you get access potentially to the medicine or device. And a lot of these trials have what we call the double-blind placebo-controlled phase that we just talked about, but then they have, following that, an open-label phase where everybody gets the treatment, whether that's a medication or the device treatment. Yeah, that's a, a lot of information just kind of taken <laughs> all at one time. If I'm a, a patient and other options are available to me that have already been FDA approved, when would I expect or, or when should I consider research to be equal or possibly a better alternative to trying something that's already proven? 
Well, I think what we touched on, you have two categories, right? You have potential patients who are just interested in research for the sake of research and looking at new possibilities. They might not even try it a medicine or a device or a different therapy. And it just, they would like to go through that process and, and see if it's something that might be helpful. And, but if you're already getting treatments, think what I said before, after we've tried a couple things, it becomes a valid option. Now, nobody can sit here and say, research is an option that has been proven for this device or treatment versus this med. We can say you've tried different meds, and this is an option that we could look at. Right now, there's a study going on for treatment-resistant depression in both major depressive disorder and bipolar disorder that uses something called the vagal nerve stimulator. Actually, this one's rather unique in that it was FDA-approved back in 2005 and was on the market through about 2007, and then Medicare gave it a non-coverage. So then all the other insurance followed with non-coverage. Interestingly, it's still covered for seizure disorders. However, the data has been looked at long-term over like around 8 to 10 years, and the long-term data actually looked better for those people who actually were implanted with this device early on. A new trial has started to look at how efficacious is this device. You have a study going on with a device that actually does have FDA approval, but now it is back in phase, what we call phase 3 trials to determine how efficacious it is. As I've spoken about before, I am both an adult and a child psychiatrist. What is very common to happen when a medication comes to market, so we'll just talk about medications a second, is that they get approval, FDA approval, for ages 18 or 19 and above. But they don't have the pediatric approval. But I'm here as a child psychiatrist, so I have an antidepressant. I'm treating somebody who say that's 14 and is depressed, and I'm choosing from off-label medications to do that. The FDA now has come to some of the pharmaceutical companies over the past several years and said you have to do trials in younger children and adolescents once you get that adult approval at some point in time to get these extensions. The interesting thing is once the medication really makes it to market, there's not a lot of incentive from the pharmaceutical companies to do that because you have a patent life on these medicines for so many years. So the interesting thing from that, from my perspective, is research doesn't always mean not proven or that it doesn't have backing that it could be beneficial. So in the trials, you do have to prove safety and you do have to prove efficacy to get the FDA approval, but for that one condition, correct? Something that's been very difficult over the years and everybody's grappling with is the placebo response in groups has been going up. And for a drug or a device to be determined efficacious in a study, you have to show enough of a separation from the placebo response. So if you have a high placebo response, it is very difficult to show efficacy, even though you might have a very efficacious medication. There's constantly people looking at how studies are designed to see if there can be a decrease in the placebo response. So this is actually why it can be very difficult as a patient to be approved to get into a study because they're made very clean. So if you have depression, you might not be able to have anxiety, ADHD, not be on any other medications. They're not the easiest thing to qualify for. Talking about placebo is, I think, an interesting topic. How do you respond to a patient who goes through a research trial and has a benefit from a placebo? 
I think you really have to look at what the placebo response in the trial. So what really happens in a research trial? If you're in the real world and you come in to receive care, you come in for your initial appointment, get your evaluation, and many places you might be seen in a month, and then from there it goes either a month or eight weeks, the time lengthens out. What happens in a research study? You come in and you're seen for the initial evaluation screening, and you're often seen weekly for multiple weeks. Yes, the medication or the device might either be the real thing or placebo, but the people that are there every time doing the ratings with you, doing the scale, spending time with you, are real people who care about how you're doing. Are you having very specific adverse effects? So they're asking a lot of questions that don't often occur in the course of a normal appointment because these are very detailed. They're looking for very specific parameters. You do get care quote-unquote, you just might not get the real medicine or not. And that's part of the reason where the placebo response comes in, because both groups get that care, quote-unquote. So there's a, a lot of good things that can come out of participating in a research study. Either it's it works and it's great for you and, you and you found your option, or maybe there's more information that comes back into your treatment plan based on something that hadn't happened in the research. But how do I justify those benefits to the risks that research can pose someone in care? And how risky to someone is it to participate in research with that chance of not getting a, the actual treatment? I think you look at phases of research. The earlier the phase, as far as human trials go, the more is unknown about the potential adverse effects. You know, for example, just coming out of animal trials and being the first in human trials, you're exposed to potentially more risk because we don't know what's happening in humans. But for that group, they're not looking for treatment efficacy. All right, that's your we want healthy population. We want side effects. So probably not going to be recommended to you when you're looking for treatment options. No. Usually in clinics, you're looking at phase three, sometimes phase two studies when things have not been FDA approved yet. So when you go in and they talk to you about the study, they already go through with you what might be some of the side effects to look for, that you might get the medicine, you you might not. And actually there's something called phase four where you actually will get the medicine has already been FDA approved and they're looking at other potential issues with the medication out in the real world. And you're followed very closely. They, you know, you might be seen weekly and there can be as needed appointments if something comes up. The biggest concern for everybody is the study participant, the person who is taking place in the research and their safety is utmost importance. Having covered a lot today, I think if we could tell you to, to take three things away from today's discussion, those highlights would be. I think we would like you to think about that, you know, research is an option. What really is research? We hope you understand clinical research a little bit better and that it is valid potential opportunity to look at. And we would hope that clinicians bring these things up to you and that there's places to search for what studies are going on across the United States and other countries. Thank you for taking this journey with us on Episode 7 of the Mental Health Commute. For Episode 8, we're going to be a little bit lighthearted and we're going to talk about something in the art of communication, and that is the use of silence and ums. 